It's not that sanctions haven't had an effect. It's that the sanctions aren't complete enough. It is the week of May 9th, and welcome to episode 131 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, your host. The war in Ukraine has created not just a military crisis, but also an economic crisis. As Ukraine's economy reels from the invasion and Western sanctions impact Russia's ability to carry on the war. Today's episode will feature Natalie Juresko, former Minister of Finance for Ukraine, for a deep dive into the current economic situation in both Russia and Ukraine and how this will impact the United States, its values and its interests. Natalie, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Lester. So uh, let's talk about Russia's economic situation first. The EU announced a couple of days ago that they're targeting the end of 2022 to end most, maybe not quite all, but most purchases by European countries of Russian oil. Can that work? Is it going to happen soon enough to have any real impact on the ground? What are your thoughts? I certainly wish it was sooner and more complete but it is better than nothing. It's already having an effect on the Russian oil market. One is oil production in Russia is down because they sense already, it's down about nine, 10%. They sense already that their markets are shutting. Their ability to sell their oil even now into the marketplace to those who are not abiding by sanctions is limited. They're having to sell their Urals crude at some 30, 40% discount to Brent, which is good. And so if I had my druthers, I'd have everyone do it now. I don't believe that that this is going to have a major cost on the European population. So I listened to a European and EU parliament conference, and they said that this would have an effect of some 0.2 to 0.3% on income. So more or less 100 euros per family. That's not a high cost from my perspective um, to try and put an end to this war. So it will have value, you know, denying Russia the monies. It's about 70 billion euro um, that are paid to Russia for that for that oil is critical. That's about the size of their military budget. And if we can deny them that hard currency sooner rather than later, um, we can bring an end to their ability to finance the ongoing war in Ukraine. So the value of the ruble took a big hit a couple of months ago when the conflict started, uh, presumably in part because of sanctions imposed by the U.S. and in concert with European countries. But it looks like the value of the ruble uh, has stabilized and perhaps even increased a little bit. Are the sanctions affecting Russia's macroeconomic situation the way we first thought? Well, I think people overestimated how quickly the sanctions would work and how complete the sanctions are. And so they're not having the effect that we all want, or at least that I, I can say most of us want uh, on the economy. They are affecting the economy. So freezing the Central Bank of Russia reserves, about 300 billion of which were frozen in European, US, other jurisdictions, has caused some, some stress on the ruble. We all We don't know exactly how much because it is a heavily managed exchange rate. The Central Bank of Russia has stopped reporting uh, publicly on the balance of payments, and it's a very illiquid market. So they are pumping money for certain to into the economy to keep the ruble exchange rate more stable. How much they've pumped in of their remaining reserves, and again, this goes back to the oil and gas purchases, how much money we continue to send that enables them to stabilize their currency is, is I think, the big issue. It's not that sanctions haven't had an effect. It's that the sanctions aren't complete enough. And they're being doled out slowly over time as we build 
our alliance with Europe and, the, and our, colleagues, our colleagues across the democratic states. And so those sanctions aren't tough enough yet. They're not covering enough space yet. And then, you know, we have the second issue, which is a lot of the world is not applying sanctions, you know, and that includes uh, democratic countries in Latin America, India, uh, as well as uh, autocratic countries like China. What are the things we could be doing with the United States and, and European countries right now to kind of close those gaps in the sanctions and make them more impactful? Well, I think one of the first is the banking sector. And I know that we're expecting to hear a couple of banks added by the European Union, important banks, Sparebank, to the list of sanctioned banks and uh, elimination from SWIFT. You know, I believe we don't need to parcel this out in this way. I think we should sanction all the banks and remove them from SWIFT. And that was what Ukrainians were pushing for from day one. There seems to be a difference in terms of how we're aiming to have sanctions affect the war. In my mind, sanctions are supposed to isolate the Russian economy as much as possible, as quickly as possible, in order to change the dynamic of choices that the Russian leadership has. And if we do it slowly and they're able to adjust, maintain, then we're not getting what we wanted out of sanctions. And so one is, I think, much broader banking sanctions. The second is, I believe there is still a great deal of, of trade uh, sanctions that can be applied. So oil and gas uh, on the part of Europe, uh, uranium purchases on the part of the United States. Why are we buying uranium from Russia? I think there needs to be a more wholesale boycott of trade with Russia um, on the part of uh, the United States, Europe, and our colleagues. I think that uh, there are a whole segment of companies that have not been targeted well enough. That's transportation and logistics. Those are companies that unless they are being sanctioned, they are very free and healthy to go and trade with other countries that are not applying sanctions. So we need to hit them hard. And then finally, I think we haven't done enough on the financial and political elites. There are many more on the list of, for example, a top Fortune 100 uh, Russian uh, elite, they need to all be sanctioned. You know, we have we hear this debate about certain individuals on or off. You know, unless and until anyone is very clearly separated themselves from the regime that continues to pr produce these atrocities, they ought to be sanctioned. And so I think there's a great deal more on the individuals. The ultimate tool, the ultimate tool that we need to think about using and when the time is right is secondary sanctions. When is the time to do secondary sanctions? Well, again, you know, um, as Mariupol, the southeastern city, is being absolutely destroyed today, tomorrow, the final civilians and defenders are being destroyed and murdered inside Azovstal's, the myriad of corridors underneath the steel company there. I would argue that today's the day. I don't want to wait until tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons are used. Again, my goal in all of this is to stop those things from happening, to try and prevent the war from continuing into greater and greater terror and atrocity. So, you know, I know that we need to manage our relationships uh, with India, with China, with Latin America, but I think select secondary sanctions are starting to be necessary now. I want to ask you something that uh, is going to demonstrate that I'm way over my skis on financial issues, which is uh, Russian payments on its on its international debts, which they in, in the last few days they've made in dollars instead of rubles, as they said they were going to do. What is the significance of that? Caught everyone by surprise in the financial markets, perhaps not the American recipients of those dollars, but there apparently was a carve out and um, they were able to make the payment without triggering sanctions. And I think the entire 
financial world on this side, on my side, is asking why. Why OFAC, why the Office of Foreign Asset Control allowed this to happen? The only thing I can draw in terms of conclusions is that there may have been an agreement with the U.S. bondholders uh, to exempt this from the sanctions as payment. It's unfortunate. Um, it's not that the sum of money involved is substantial. Like if you know someone is saying, well, better if they, they use their dollars to pay our creditors and we take their dollars away. That's really of no value in this because the amount that they paid was not that substantial that it really affects their dollar reserves. I think it would have been much more beneficial to us to see Russia, um, in fact, default on that debt payment by trying to use rubles or other or, or not paying and be very clear that they are out of the international financial markets. So I, it was something that disappointed me, disappointed my colleagues in Ukraine. I, I guess we have to look to U.S. Treasury to why that transaction went through. You mentioned hitting Russian financial elites. And I think you know we've come to appreciate the term oligarch for those folks. In the news, it appears that what we're doing is going after big yachts and um, overpriced homes in London and elsewhere and things, you know, big shiny objects that look good in a newspaper story. Is that the real value to go after with oligarchs or are there other ways to punish them and confiscate their wealth that could be of benefit to Ukraine? So there are a series of things I think we need to think through. One is that Neither the United States nor the UK, as examples, ever really demanded um, transparent beneficial ownership rules. So what we're able to confiscate is what we know, but there's so much of the assets that they hold that we don't know because we don't know ultimately who bought the townhouse in, uh, in London or the uh, penthouse in New York. It's hidden through multiple layers of uh, corporations after corporations, and we don't know. And so number one is we don't, and this is, I believe, why this task force has been set up at, uh, internationally to try and seek out and search out. But I'll say this is an incredibly opportune time for us to apply and adopt beneficial ownership transparency in the United States and put an end to this practice. It's not only Russian oligarchs, it's Venezuelan and Chinese and anyone trying to hide their money. And we know that. We've seen the Panama Papers. So I think one is we're not getting to the great store of their assets. I think something that would be equally painful for them, if, if again, what we're trying to do is cause them to cause a change, or at least to not support uh, the policy of Putin and his war cabinet, then I think you know you need to look at visa status, not allowing them, their families to be uh, the way I typically put it, to breathe the, the air of freedom if they're not allowing the people of Ukraine to breathe air of freedom. So we need to, uh, in my view, revoke visas for them and their families as well. I think there is a second issue, which is we've, we've gone so far as um, ceasing trade or, or, or suspending trade in Russian uh, companies. We need to delist them entirely. I don't believe um, that at this point they need to have the right to come back to the markets. There's, we, should, we should establish very clear benchmarks as to when and how any of those companies could ever uh, be relisted on our markets. And the reason I say that is because you know, we still have investors in the United States who are buying those assets. You know, They're looking at you know, fire sale prices and you have hedge funds, private equity funds, uh, mutual funds buying Russian assets. And that sh we shouldn't be doing that. Uh, we should not be investing into the market that is trying to destroy the rules-based order that we created post-World War II. In, in addition to that, we're going to have a challenge on confiscation, and we're going to need to adopt legislation in every one of these jurisdictions uh, to confiscate these frozen assets. And that's going to require court processes. You know, there are, there are, we are a rules-based, rule-of-law-based society, and we need to go through all of that. But we need to establish the legal environment 
to begin that confiscation. That those assets, all the confiscated Russian assets, ought to go towards the rebuilding, the revitalization of Ukraine when this is over. Terrific. Let me ask you, devil's advocate, question: As we, you know, isolate Russia from the West economically, and presumably take more and more steps to do that and accomplish that. We're really pushing them into the arms of the Chinese and and perhaps uh, closer links to Iran. Do you have concerns about the long, the really long-term implications of that? I don't have economic concerns. I have concerns that we are heading into a world that's bifurcated, uh, a bifurcated world where the autocratic world is on one side and, and the democratic or, or, or the freedom-loving world on the other. I think from an economic standpoint, China can't replace the West in terms of what uh, the West has meant to the Russian economy, and Iran certainly can't, neither on a technology provision, nor even, for example, in the gas market that we've talked about. China, to send the gas that's currently being sent to the European Union to China, is going to take years of building pipelines. And frankly speaking, the Chinese are excellent negotiators. They're not going to pay top price for that gas. So I don't think this is a one-for-one replacement of markets uh, by the Chinese for the Russian. But I am concerned that we're heading into a cold war of sorts between, as I said, freedom-loving countries, democracies, and the autocratic world. And what that means for global trade, what it means for the US dollar as the reserve currency, the global currency, I think we were already seeing that. So I'm not saying that this this war began that process of, of fragmentation or separation, but I think it's certainly going to accelerate it. And I'm not certain that we have thought through the implications of that. China holding U.S. treasuries, we selling a great deal of our exports and importing a great deal from China. What does all of this mean? COVID was an opening to the issue because we looked at it from a supply side perspective. But this is going to be, I believe, a much greater divisiveness. I know Secretary Blinken was supposed to give a speech on on China policy a few days ago, but because of COVID, they, they've postponed it. But I think in many ways, this new framing by the administration of their approach to China has become more and more important because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine for exactly what, what you just described. There's this other element. China and Russia are at the level of Putin and Xi aligned, but Russia and China are global competitors in another way. I mean, the Russians see China as the follow-on communist country. They were the source of communism. They looked to China in their, in their ideology as kind of the little brother. The Chinese, of course, look at Russia as a tiny economy, you know, the seventh or eighth now largest economy in the world, and they are the behemoth, um, and they look at Russia as the little brother. There's a demographics issue with the Chinese constantly needing more um, space for their growing population and the Russian population declining, and that whole border being very, very Chinese on both sides. Um, in terms of the population. So that friendship, that partnership, I think only goes so deep. And then it becomes a, 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 a very, very different relationship, a competitive relationship at some point. There's a lot of people in China and a lot of empty space in Siberia. And you can kind of do the math long term. All right, let's flip the script a little bit and talk about Ukraine and its economic situation. President Zelensky said a few days ago uh, that he needs $5 billion a month to sustain Ukrainian government operations during the war. That's to pay soldiers, to pay doctors and nurses and the folks who are really winning, winning this war. Is the West going to be able to put together that kind of support for Ukraine? It has to. It just simply has to. And um, I know that the Biden administration has included, I think, one and a half to two billion of financial support into this $33 billion package for the next three months. So they're looking at a three month window. And that may be smart in the sense that we don't know where we'll be three months from now. But um, that's not even half of the gap. And so the EU, um, the G20 more broadly, 
And then the international financial institutions are going to have to come up with more. And this isn't money that's tied to programs. This is macro financial support to the budget. It's budget support. Um, they're not in an IMF program um, and they can't be in an IMF program right now, given the environment, you know, implementing reforms right now on top of everything would just be impossible. Um, and so this is to me, the single largest untold challenge of this war, the need to raise this $5 billion per month. Um, and I know that Zel President Zelensky announced yesterday U24, which is ability for everyone to donate to Ukraine, humanitarian, financial, or military. But you're not going to raise $5 billion a month through PayPal. It, you know, I would expect that the G7, again, the G20 is going to be discussing this. And this is a real concern. And I've been, I've spoken to the finance minister. The budget has really, really been reduced to a wartime budget. It's what you said. It's paying the military, paying your doctors and your nurses, it's paying pensions, and it's providing a modicum of support for the 6 million internally displaced people who haven't left for Europe, 4 million who've left to Europe, but 6 million who've had to flee their homes, but remain in Ukraine with nothing but the shirts on their backs. And so there really isn't a way to make this uh, number much smaller. And you know, it it, it needs to be, it, 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 it isn't that large a number when you think about what we were doing in Afghanistan for 20 years and to what and, and who who and how are we supporting what were, what did we get from that here you have a country um you know where you're not institution building they're fighting you know independently on their own time blood and human uh loss for democracy for uh rule of law for the values of the western democratic world and this is a small price frankly speaking to pay and it, it gets back to the issue which is Everyone's asking, I understand, you know, I'm paying more at the pump for what? For Ukraine? I mean, I don't even know where that is in many cases. I get that. But I think we need to make sure everyone understands how existential this war is and how the cost of not winning in Ukraine now is going to be so much greater for every one of us, American, European or other. The global cost of losing this war is going to be something that we can't even fathom in terms of the danger to us, in terms of the potential for U.S. troops to have to get involved on the part of NATO if he goes further, which Putin has threatened to go further. If he doesn't lose in Ukraine, who's to say and when is it the Baltics, Poland or other parts of NATO? What There, there are costs globally to the economy, you know, so food supplies. People talk about this a lot. Ukraine supplies food to some 400 million people a year. And we have no access to ports in Ukraine. We can't export. And, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure how we're going to get through the growing season. You know, we've got a plant now, both fertilizer and fuel are in great shortage. Plus, people are dodging bombs throughout the country as they plant. And what is that hunger and famine in Northern Africa and the Middle East going to cost in terms of human lives, incremental, in terms of migrant patterns into Europe and the slowdown of the European economy and what that means? Then you take the semiconductor chips. Ukraine produces 70% of the value-added neon. We already had supply chain problems with semiconductor chips during COVID. And it's not just computers, right? Every car has semiconductor chips. Every, every telephone has semiconductor chips. So what does that, is that going to mean to our, our economy? And then you go further than that, and it's titanium and the entire airplane uh, construction uh, industry. Uh, titanium is really sourced from Ukraine and Russia. But with no titanium, we're not building new planes. And so it goes on and on. The longer this goes on, it's not just a moral and ethical issue. It's not just a great uh, power issue. This is an issue for every one of us because it's going to have a much longer lasting cost, both in terms of our freedoms in terms of where our sons and daughters serve in the military, the wars that they have to face, and in terms of the cost of living for all of us. Great words, Natalie. I saw a story this morning about 
Russia uh, starting to take food out of Ukraine and bring it to Russia and and strikes on agricultural infrastructure. And it brings back uh, the fears of what happened 90 years ago in Ukraine, the famines imposed by uh, Stalin. What are your thoughts about you have more of them uh, on this agricultural sector and what Russia is doing and what this could mean? So it, it is a, a horrible um, reminder that this Russian imperialism has been going on for hundreds of years in Ukraine. And they tried to, through genocide, kill the Ukrainian people in 1921 with famine, in 1932-33 with famine. My father is from Poltava, which is at the center of that um, forced uh, Stalin famine, and they're doing it again. I think um, it's clear that the, the amount that they've stolen in terms of grain storage to date will not have an effect immediately on Ukrainian um, food storage. A, you know, Ukraine a village to feed itself. It's 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 sm- a small part right now. But the fact that that's what they're doing and that's their goal, their aim, their objective, and the tool that they're using tells us everything about uh, what this war really is 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 intended to do. It's intended to to eliminate the Ukrainian people. I, I think the fact that they're stealing tractors. Um, I don't know if you've heard the stories, but they sold a series. Uh, they stole a series of agricultural machinery. But Ukrainians use very advanced, you know, John Deere and, and and other machinery, and it was all on remote. They were unable to use it when they got it to, I guess I heard Chechnya, um, because it got locked down. To some extent, they deserve that. I think the bigger danger to the Ukrainian agricultural sector is what I described, which is we have no access to our ports. And without access to the ports, we are unable to export, even if we can grow it. I think Poland, Bulgaria, other European countries are starting to adapt their rail systems to be able to take by rail what we can export, but that will be minimal in comparison. And I do believe that we get fooled by the statements uh, that this is an Eastern war, that they've changed phase two or phase four, whatever it is, is just in Eastern Ukraine. That's actually not true. Every night they're bombing throughout the country and they've bombed as far west as Ushrod, which is on the border of Hungary. And that means that, again, our farmers are not only lacking fuel and fertilizer, but they're, they're dodging missiles, they're dodging bombs. The government has put uh, a program in place to try and encourage farmers to farm at least two thirds of the land. Um, that's farther away from this active phase of the war and only randomly bombed um, and provided them with low cost loans. But I think it remains to be seen, you know, planting is is just one part. You plant, then you fertilize, then you, you know, it's you have to you have to you have to tend to the land for the full planting season. And whether that will be possible throughout this two thirds is really a question. Natalie, I've heard you say that uh, when it comes to reconstructing Ukraine after the war, or perhaps, you know, as the war hopefully soon winds down with a Ukrainian victory, the cost of reconstructing Ukraine will be uh, massive, a trillion dollars or more. You've said the United States should consider making a commitment now to spending a hundred billion dollars on the reconstruction of Ukraine. Can you, um, can you talk about that, the idea behind that and what that would mean on the ground in Ukraine? So, yeah, I, I've been doing a lot of thinking coming out of Puerto Rico and, and having lived through Hurricane Maria and the thinking on rebuilding in Puerto Rico, a lot of lessons learned. And I've kind of taken a look at the Marshall Plan, uh, the rebuilding of Kuwait after the Iraqi invasion, uh, some of the rebuilding of the Balkans. I think that what you're seeing in Ukraine is going to be the largest uh, rebuild, renew, revitalize plan we've ever seen in our recent history. And that's going to require a great deal of commitment on the part of all parties. I think Russian assets, confiscated assets, need to form the very core of it. 
But the G20 and our international financial institutions are going to have to play an incredibly important role. And then the private sector. This is not going to be done by governments alone. The private sector is going to have to step up, um, understanding how valuable Ukraine is as a part of the global economy um, and how valuable it can be to their own bottom lines. I think in terms of the United States, it is the global leader. I have in my mind no doubt that you know what the United States has done to build this coalition of democracies has been critical uh, for Ukraine, and that without the United States, notwithstanding the support of the EU and others, it would not have been possible um, for Ukraine to prevail. And so I think that's going to be the same on the rebuilding, on the revitalization. And I think making an announcement now, making a commitment now to that rebuilding has an incredibly important psychological value, both to Ukrainians who need to have confidence to keep going, who need to have confidence as a refugee somewhere in the middle of, you know, uh, Spain or England or Germany, that they can, they're going to be able to go home. There's going to be a home to go home to. Remember that many of these people have fled cities that have been not you know, damaged by a hurricane, but turned into dust. There's nothing in Mariupol, 95, 97% gone. The town of Volnavaka doesn't exist anymore. So we, we have, there's an incredible psychological value, both to the leadership, to the armed forces who are fighting this desperate fight, and to the people of Ukraine, that the United States, which is the global leader, is saying right here and now, one, they believe Ukraine will prevail, which you're hearing more and more of that from, our, from the administration, but two, that they will be there for Ukraine when this is over. Second, I think it has a, a very important effect on Russian psychology. The Russians have, from the very beginning, mistakenly thought that the West would not stay together, that the, that the unity that, that NATO is showing would, was going to be uh, impossible. And I think another sign, uh, another um, nail in that coffin it has to be our u- unity in rebuilding Ukraine into a 21st century EU member that is part and parcel of the free world in, the, in our globe. And then there's a third element. And I think that is confidence for the U.S. private sector. I come back to that private sector. I uh, am getting phone calls now from companies already thinking how they can be a part of that rebuilding. But I believe that it would be hugely beneficial to say to the U.S. private sector, we are going to be there. We are going to be there as a government. We want you there as the private sector. I mean, the last thing anyone wants is for China to rush in and start rebuilding Ukraine. I, you know, I hope the politics never allow for that, but, but it should be the companies uh, from the Western democracies that are there shoulder to shoulder uh, with Ukrainians rebuilding. And I think that it gives everyone time, whether it's a few months or whether it's three months or six months, I don't know. I hope sooner rather than later to start thinking, how can I be a part of this? How, how can I be a part of the rebuilding? Natalie, uh, I know you personally uh, have gotten involved in some projects to help uh, Ukrainians deal with uh, the effects of this invasion. Can can you talk about that effort and um, and if there's anything you want to say to our listeners about about how they might be able to help that effort? We'd love to hear it. So since the war started, I put in as many hours as I can voluntarily to try and engage each and every one of us. Is I think there is something each and every one of us can do, and frankly speaking, we can do it every day. Um, first of all. We can contact our elected representatives. We are a democracy in the United States. We are heading into an election. I would hate to think that this becomes a a partisan issue. We need to let our congressmen and our White House know that we all support, regardless of party, continued military support for Ukraine, continued financial support for Ukraine. Um, and, And I think you can make those phone calls, send those text messages every single day. So that's one. Second, I think um, there are things you can do 
uh, to demand um, that businesses boycott Russia. We are investors. We are stakeholders. We are consumers. We can follow the websites boycottrussia.info, uh, squeezingputin.com. There's a Yale management uh, business management um, website. You can see which companies are doing what, and you can you can write to them. You can insist as an investor, as a shareholder, that this is not what you expect from a company implementing ESG principles. You expect them to walk the walk of ESG, not just talk about it. And you can stop consuming the products. So anyone who's eating Oreo cookies, just stop. Oreo cookies continue to be manufactured by Mondelez, which is a Chicago-based firm. There's no reason for that. There's no reason for any company to be paying taxes in Russia, financing a military that is committing this level of atrocities, raping children, murdering, uh, bombing maternal hospitals. Uh, these are war crimes. And no company ought to be paying taxes to, a, a, to war criminals to commit those war crimes. So you can be a part of this boycott effort. You can raise money and you can give money. As we said, there are so many needs. My recommendation here is to focus on the 6 million internally displaced people in Ukraine. Um, there's been an enormous outpouring of compassion to those who've uh, gone to Europe, and they're being supported by a lot of international organizations. But it's much harder to help those who are inside Ukraine. And it, and it requires working with Ukrainian organizations on the ground, people of experience in logistics. Here, I'm working with Rick Elias, who is a um, private equity uh, businessman who has a firm called Red Ventures. If you've ever used uh, TV Guide or other um, companies like that, uh, Point Sky, um, Bankrate, a, a variety of digital media companies, he is committed to match the first two and a half million we raise uh, in a campaign. It's at www.strongerthanever.com. I'm personally going to work with, with them to make sure that this is for essential humanitarian needs in those communities that are most hard hit in Ukraine and that we can get it to the recipients. There is one last thing I'll say, which is that President Biden has announced, the Biden administration has announced that they'll be accepting 100,000 Ukrainians on humanitarian parole into the United States. And if you go to ukraine.welcome.us, you can support those uh, refugees in the United States. You can become a sponsor. You can provide English lessons. You can offer jobs. There is a CEO council there um, headed by Goldman Sachs' David Solomon. It is a bipartisan organization, so it is co-chaired by the Bushes, the Obamas, the Clintons, the Carters. It started with Afghan refugees and is expanded to include the Ukrainians. There is a marketplace there if you have extra mattresses or you have you know, extra kitchen goods in your near community. It'll put you in touch with where those things are needed so you can help refugees as well. There are so many things we can do. We can learn about Ukraine. We can buy books about Ukraine. We can donate those books to libraries. We can become educated on why this is so critical to who we are as a people, what the United States stands for, and how without peace and without Ukraine prevailing, we're all at risk. Natalie, uh, really terrific stuff. We'll put links to the items you've suggested in, in the notes for the podcast. And uh, we really appreciate your time, your incredibly important message about how important this is to all of us as Americans. Really terrific. Thank you for, for being with us. Thank you. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Jesse Klober for research assistance, and Ruth Joe for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.